Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program with news, events, and interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. My name is Brad Swift. Today's interview is with Dale McCullough and Wayne Linklater. They're both researchers of large wild mammals. Dale McCullough is a professor emeritus at the Environmental Science and Policy Management Department of the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley. Wayne Linklater is a senior lecturer in the School of Biological Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. We talk about their research in wild animals in urban settings, specifically a survey of deer and other wild animals in El Cerrito and Kensington that Dale McCullough and Kathleen Jennings first completed in 1995 and again in 1998. Wayne Linklater and Jeffrey Benson repeated the survey in 2010. A summary report of the surveys can be downloaded from Wayne's website. Wayne's website address is really long, so if you would like it, send us an email and we'll pass it along to you. Our address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. We're joined by Dale McCullough and Wayne Linklater. And Dale, why don't you tell us about yourself and where you're currently positioned at UC? I know that you're a professor emeritus, uh, which I'm is a, a professor emeritus, yes, which means I'm retired in ordinary person's language. And I retired in 2004. Most of the things I did at UC Berkeley have, have, you know, wound down and haven't been done, but I've continued to do research on several projects that I've been interested in. So I have been continuing research on kangaroos in outback Australia and leopards and tigers in Far East Russia and cicad deer throughout Southeast Asia. Great. And Wayne? Well, I'm a wildlife biologist uh, from New Zealand, from Victoria University. In fact, at the it's quite a handle, but at the Centre for Biodiversity and Restoration Ecology at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. And like Dale, I, my history is full of work on, on uh, large mammals in exciting places. I have PhD students working in Malaysia and in India on elephants and in uh, South Africa on rhinoceros. What brings me here is my growing interest in the relationships between people and wildlife which is why I came and did a sabbatical here for uh, six months in 2008, 2009, the area in which we replicated um, some work that we'd done in Wellington, looking at people's relationships with wildlife in their backyard. So is that when you and Dale hooked up on this wildlife survey that you've yeah. done in the El Cerrito and Kensington Hills, or just, I guess it's the entire, it's all of Kensington and all of El Cerrito. That's right. Yes, what happened was that Dale pointed out a PhD thesis to me from Kathleen Jennings, and it immediately piqued my interest. I contacted Kathleen, and she had done this survey in the uh, mid-1990s with Dale's uh, advice, and I saw a really quite exciting opportunity to replicate that work 10 years later. But Dale knows better how that survey evolved in the first place. Yeah, it happened sort of accidentally in that the deer population in in the East Bay was building up and becoming a problem, and people were going to city councils and places like that and complaining, and 
I live in Kensington, and the deer in my neighborhood had gone up, so I could I could have dinner and sit out on the deck in the evening and guarantee that deer would be going up and down the street. And then I thought, well, geez, here I, I get on airplanes and fly off to Japan and Taiwan and Vietnam and so on to, to study deer, and I don't even know what <laughs> these deer out in my street are doing. And so I decided, well, we better do a, a biological study of them to find out how deer are behaving in the urban area and how that compares with what they do in the wild. And so we started started out with the uh, survey to get some sort of background. It's it's hard to apply a lot of the methods that we use in the wild to an urban situation because of the high density of people, and particularly in in uh, places like uh, Kensington and El Cerrito, where the traditional lot is very small and the house is very big. That was the motivation, and so we did the uh, the first survey um, on a random, systematic random sample, so it covered a certain area, these two cities, and uh, and then we repeated it in 1998 because we, from our work, were seeing something of a decline in the number of deer, and we wanted to see if that was what was happening across these these two uh, communities. And in general it was, although it was mainly in the areas on the higher parts of the hill. And just to sort of anticipate, the deer continued to go down and we're at low levels. And one of the things that has piqued our, our interest recently is there is evidence that the deer are starting to build up again and so Wayne's interest fit right into well if we're going to have another increase in deer then it would be really good to be able to document that and so um, the, the, the timing from my point of view was perfect. And Wayne with your current survey you're picking up the laurels of this uh, this research, and right. So I don't have we don't have the facility to re- uh, repeat the biology on the ground. Unfortunately, would love to, but we don't. But what we can do is uh, use this background information already gathered by Kathleen Jennings and Dale to look at whether the picture has changed for people in the ten twelve years since the last survey in nineteen ninety eight. And in particular, I'm very interested in, as I've said, the relationship between people and wildlife. And what what replicating a survey like this enables us to do is to try and build a relationship or understand the relationship between people's beliefs or attitudes about wildlife, in this case deer, and the presence of deer themselves, and how that changes over time. The reason we're interested in that is because these days, uh, when it comes to managing wildlife, understanding how to manage the problem with wildlife that is the people in the equation is becoming more important Mm. so it's very important to understand how people's attitudes and beliefs change how dynamic are they to external influences like the density of deer or or um experience and uh so living around the deer that's right for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. increased tolerance or not or not and actually, understanding that dynamic is important for managers who need to prioritise in a landscape that's full of people whose uh, relationship with the deer is variously extremely negative to extremely positive. It's a very challenging environment to work in. 
many managers tear their hair out at this sort of problem. But if we could add a social dimension to this wildlife management problem, we might be some of the way to resolving some of those issues, I think. Is there any way within the survey to try to take account of the management of the area? Is there an overlaid management in the El Cerrito-Kensington area, or is there, there really, is really no a, public policy Yeah, there really isn't a, a management system, and most, I mean, you know, the, the way deer populations are traditionally controlled is through hunting, and obviously you can't have hunting in this situation. Mm-hmm. But in places like Kensington and El Cerrito, you just, you can take an animal maybe under extraordinary circumstances, but the the hazard is just too great. Well, does does trapping become a solution, or is that... It's very, very expensive and hard to do, and people think contraception. Well, again, if you have animals in captivity or that sort of thing, contraception works great. But on free and roaming animals, it's very expensive. It just won't work. So literally, there's no no good solution. And, you know, again, to refer to the Monterey Peninsula, where we have this longer record, people get excited, you know, mm-hmm. and they they finally get enough information to see that there's really not much that can be done. And by that time, the deer start going down on their own, and mm-hmm. people forget about the problem, and Until 15 years later, back. <laughs> it comes back again. Yeah. One of the other interesting parts of that original survey, too, was that although the deer are concentrated toward the upland, their penetration into the El Cerrito down near the um, Bart is actually quite deep. Mm-hmm. Although in low numbers, they actually get right down there into very high density, mm-hmm. high traffic areas. Basically, they go down until there's too much concrete, you know, not enough deer habitat. Right. But if there's any residential neighborhood with the typical gardens and so on, they're there. They were on Albany Hill yeah, they went clear down to the bay where any place that there was suitable habitat, they they were there. And Wayne, with the current survey, and then hopefully you're going to try to continue this project, do you need to get funding for it, or how will you maintain it? Well, fortunately, this sort of work doesn't require large amounts of funding. I shouldn't say that uh, publicly, because, of course, <laughs> we're always after funding. But, but unfortunately, this sort of work can be data-rich without large amounts of funding because um, we're, we're primarily interested in people's observations and their opinions. And in a topic like this, uh, people are actually very forthcoming and very helpful. For some reason, uh, most sorts of surveys have very low response rates. I think people feel harassed and harried by surveyors, political surveyors, commercial surveyors. But when it comes to wildlife... This seems to attract people's interest, and and uh, most everyone has an opinion on wildlife in their in their locality, and so fortunately uh, we get very high response rates, which we're very grateful for for this sort of survey. So um, the resources required to undertake a survey are fairly rudimentary, which actually makes it possible to do this sort of work over the long term with some confidence. So, I I think depending on the outcomes of this one, we'll almost certainly repeat it. I'd be very interested in knowing how uh, deer and uh, other wildlife disperse through this landscape. What are the barriers and and triggers to that widespread movement? I suspect that there are elements of the urban landscape that actually landscape architects and urban designers plan for other reasons 
the deer and other wildlife find very useful for moving about the landscape. These corridors that Dale mentioned, for example, where people can't sell land anymore under high tensile uh, electric wires, are um, these these may function as very important corridors for wildlife movement through the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, maybe making the urban landscape much more permeable than it used to be. listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today we're talking with Wayne Linklater and Dale McCullough about wild animals in urban settings. So you're really focused on deer because mm-hmm. they were the pest, so to speak. Well, that's what we focused on, but, mm-hmm. you know, As I was broad, also yeah. keeping a very pretty close watch on what was going on with coyotes, because they were one of the predators, and again, I'm not familiar with what coyotes are doing right now, but they were coming down through that Mosier corridor, clear down to the, the middle school down there, uh, and, uh, you know, we had some evidence that mountain lions were you know, on the verge of coming in. One case where it probably was a mountain lion that came down below Arlington Avenue. And, of course, uh, the recent mountain lion, you know, geez, more like Shattuck, Shattuck Avenue, I think. Yeah, basically Shattuck and Cedar. <laughs> and and uh, so it, it it's a problem with uh, disper- young dispersing animals mainly. You know, these aren't mountain lions that have territories that overlap. It, it, it usually when we see animals like that, they're they're young animals that are dispersing and trying to find a territory where they can they can live. And uh, and of course, these uh, seer make awfully good meals. <laughs> And, of course, we worry about an attack on a person, you know, that's, right. that's the, the, the big concern because it, in each case the probability is very, very low, but enough cases and it, mm-hmm. you know, eventually will become inevitable that there will be some attack and, and then all the wheels will come off because there would be zero tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. So then that would reintroduce hunting? Well, you can't hunt here, so and you, it it would be hard to do any kind of control. That's what makes this so difficult. Is uh, the the sort of example we have is down uh, on the Monterey Peninsula, where the deer have periodically gone up and gone down again for reasons that we don't really understand. We know it's not direct mortality; it's failure in uh, successive reproduction, not the attempt to reproduce, but that the fawn doesn't survive for reasons that we don't understand. But they've gone up and down on like a 15 to 18 year time period. So my expectation is that these deer may show some sort of similar pattern. Eventually we may figure out why and like I say, just over the last year or so, there are the signs that the deer are starting to come up. So, mm-hmm. peaked in 1995, already started going down. They went down very, very gradually, 
our radio collared animals, you know, live normal lifespans and very gradually disappear, just like you would you would expect. What is that lifespan? How long? Well, in the urban area, uh, the equivalent of 70 would probably be about 12 or 13 years for a deer. And, but, you know, some humans live to be 100, so occasionally you're going to probably get a 16- or 17-year-old uh, deer. And again, in the urban area where the hazards aren't that great. Interestingly, the animal, that we, the radio animal that we had that lived the longest time died in a yard right across the street from the yard where we captured it. Hmm. <laughs> you could easily toss a rock from <laughs> the spot where we captured it to where it it went to its final resting. <laughs> Goes back to that really small range that you were talking about yes, in the urban that, setting. In uh, hot spots for food because of gardening and also fruit trees, which is a major attractant when when there's fruit in the fall. listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today we're talking with Wayne Linklater and Dale McCullough about wild animals in urban settings. Just a, you know, just a recent illustration of what you're talking about, why know the biology of the animals. They uh, have had some problems with deer attacks, quote, on people, also down near the, the food ghetto. I was contacted indirectly by one of the graduate students in, in the department here who is working with a, a city official on that, and I said, well, I don't... I don't know what's going on, but my guess is that people are walking dogs and it's females with fawns that are attacking because in the wild they recognize that dog is a coyote or so on. Mm. Well, it turns out that is exactly what the situation was when they talked about it a, a bit. But see, just having that little clue about mm. you know the biology of the animal and how those interactions work puts that whole problem into a different context. A piece of information like that immediately informs, because suddenly the options are either biological control the mother deer, but also this becomes an information management problem, doesn't it? Because for most people, when they understand that this deer is acting in defence, they'll change their behaviour. That information becomes a way of managing the problem by changing people's behavior rather than potentially the cost of managing a deer population right wildlife feeding is a classic uh, example of this isn't it we're in places where the feeding of wildlife becomes a problem the wildlife come in they come in at large densities they lose their fear of people they immediately become more dangerous mm-hmm. just that piece of information and some sort of social marketing campaign to inform people that actually the magnitude of the problem that feeding causes is sometimes often enough enough to reduce the magnitude of the problem people change their behavior it also empowers people and it empowers management agencies in ways that other sorts of solutions which create all sorts of controversy don't. 
The other thing is it, it sensitizes people. So if you say you shouldn't be feeding them, you shouldn't be taming them, mm. that's dangerous. You should be a little afraid of the deer, and the deer should be a little afraid of you. And then there are almost never problems. But if the deer totally becomes unafraid, that's when the problem comes in. And most wildlife problems are of that kind. So like where there have been cases where coyotes have attacked children, it's in cases where people have been feeding them, they've completely lost their fear. And the other thing is you can tell people you should reinforce. If if you approach the deer and, and they don't go, go away, you know, get your darn broom or... <laughs> whatever you have, you know, but just make that deer get out of there to establish the fact that it's still not running the place. If we take a step back and, and think about uh, relationships between wildlife and people in urban landscapes, one of the really interesting parts of that context to me is that this year the world's urban population just tipped 50%. The world's population just tipped 50% urban. Most people in the world now live in urban areas. They live in, in areas which are depauperative wildlife and wilderness. It's really interesting to me to try and understand what the implications of that are for the future of wildlife conservation and wilderness conservation. Because increasingly the world is going to depend on people making decisions who no longer have contact with wilderness or wildlife anymore the way that our grandparents did, for instance. And other academics have talked about this idea of extinction of experience. So the voting populace in North America, for instance, are going to be less and less ecologically or environmentally literate with time, the more urbanised they become. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, how important, therefore relationships with wildlife and urban areas might become for facilitating this relationship with wilderness. So that's one of the things that gets me interested in in urban landscapes and these unurban things like deer. So let me just say thank you very much for your time in talking about this with us. You're most welcome. feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. The Science at Cal lecture for May is Associate Professor Neil Susui from the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management at the College of Natural Resources. The lecture will be May 21st at 11 a.m. in the Genetics and Plant Biology Building, Room 100. He will be talking about extreme sociality supercolonies of the invasive Argentine ant. With the end of the semester days away, here's an on-campus resource you may find helpful. Reuse. Reuse is a student-run program dedicated to promoting the reuse of materials on the UC Berkeley campus. They promote reuse by providing spaces for the campus community to freely exchange 
reusable goods. The reuse stations consist of shelving units placed in buildings where campus members donate and pick up reusable materials. To learn where the stations are located, visit their website, reuse.berkeley.edu. For those with bigger items or specific needs, Reuse now sponsors an online forum for exchanging things. The forum address is exchange.berkeley.edu. You do need to have a berkeley.edu email address to use the forum. Thursday, May 12th, is Bike to Work Day at UC Berkeley. On Bike to Work Day, UC Berkeley will host an energizer station in Sprawl Plaza from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. I have no idea what an energizer station is. If you have a bike and you need help fixing it or maintaining it, there are at least two groups on campus ready to help. Citizen Cycle and Cal. both have free sessions to repair bikes and hopefully teach you how to maintain your bike. Citizen Cycle has two free clinics a week in front of the East Asian Library. The Monday clinic is held from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., and the Friday clinic is from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Citizen Cycle is a voluntary student group. By Cycal has free repair three days a week, Monday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., Wednesday, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Their website is bicycal, B-I-C-Y-C-A-L dot com. The free repair sessions are held just behind the Golden Bear Cafe at Sproul Plaza. Bicycal is a student-funded cooperative. Two news items of note. This first news story was derived from the UC Berkeley News Center story by Sarah Yang. In early April 2011, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu announced grants totaling $112.5 million of funding over five years to support the development of advanced solar photovoltaic-related manufacturing processes throughout the United States. The Energy Department's SunShot Advanced Manufacturing Partnerships will help the solar power industry overcome technical barriers and reduce costs for photovoltaic installations. A local outgrowth of this SunShot funding is the Bay Area Photovoltaics Consortium, jointly led by the University of California, Berkeley, and Stanford University. The consortium will receive $25 million spread over five years. Industry sources will provide $1 million annually to the consortium budget. The Bay Area Photovoltaics Consortium will fund competitive grants through a process open to all universities, national laboratories, and research institutions. The consortium seeks to spur research and development of new materials and manufacturing processes that will cut the cost, significantly increase production volume, and improve the performance of solar cells and devices. Ali Javi, UC Berkeley Associate Professor of Electrical Engineering and co-director of the consortium, addressed their goals by saying, The cost of solar energy in 2010 was about $3.40 per watt of power installed. Our end goal is to decrease that cost to $1 per watt installed. Our collaboration with industry will be critical in achieving this goal. We are fortunate that the Bay Area is home to such a high density of photovoltaic-related companies. Cal Green Fund grants for 2011 were announced at the 8th Annual UC Berkeley Sustainability Summit, April 19th. The grants were awarded to Christopher Carmichael at the UC Botanical Garden, Josh Mandel, the College of Letters and Science, Elizabeth Chan 
of the Energy and Resources Class 190, Annie Gordon and Parijat Chakrabarti at the UC Berkeley Compost Alliance, and Frank Yu at UC Residence Hall Assembly. listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from our listeners. If you have comments about the show, or would like the link to Wayne Linklater's website from which you can download the El Cerrito and Kensington Wild Animals Survey, send us an email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>